Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning uh, sessions. Now, about, I think, almost uh, uh, 14 months of, uh, that we have been doing this. Uh, uh, sometimes it seems longer, sometimes shorter. Uh, but you know, just delighted that Dr. Shriver has been with me in this uh, long journey. And uh, I was looking at uh, my calendar from last year. On this date, uh, I was asked by the Loomis Chafee School to uh, give the, their students an update on, on pandemics. And the title was Before, During, and After COVID-19. Uh, and uh, you know, I think I was looking at the slides and I did not think that by 2021, around this time, it would still be in the midst of a, of a surge. Uh, and that's exactly what we have been seeing. I think John will will update you on the epidemiology of COVID-19. Uh, some good uh, news ahead, though, in terms of uh, where we will be in the summer. And I think that's what we have to, you know, grab on to uh, to those uh, uh, no, news of hope that things are, are going in the right direction. And we will get there. We will get there. So so hang in there. I know it's been tough. Um, the little beautiful snow this morning. Uh, we thought it was springtime, but uh, you know, again, this is. Snow's like a little mini wave, but the sun will come out over the weekend and uh, it will be far better moving forward. A couple of things that are I just want to mention, and uh, they, they are, they are some sad news. Of course, uh, everyone heard the news from last night of the uh, another mass shooting, and this time at, at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis where eight people have died. Um, again, some senseless killings. And, and you know, I just want to, obviously, our hearts go out to those families and and those of you who uh, in the past have been touched by, uh, by uh, this, this type of event, uh, certainly in our community. So uh, again, uh, my heart goes out to everyone that is feeling the pain this morning. Uh, I also want to express my, my sincere condolences to uh, Dr. Kalyani Raghavan, who's one of our uh, pediatricians and, uh, and uh, sedation pain experts. Uh, her mother passed away last week uh, so our, of natural causes, so I want to express our condolences to Kalyani and uh, that we were there with you as a family. Uh, and then lastly, uh, to Nilda Fernandez, uh, one of our most experienced uh, social workers and leaders in the pediatric HIV field. Uh, her brother, uh, Ed, uh, died last week of COVID-19. He was only 49 uh, and healthy. And this just tells you, you know, how devastating this pandemic has been, can be. So Nilda, to you uh, and your family, extensive family, uh, obviously our sincere condolences as well. Now, uh, just a couple of announcements. Uh, next week uh, on April 20th, we have a, a special grand rounds. Uh, it's, it's called Racism as Societal Pathogen. Uh, our speaker, uh, Dr. Spinks Franklin from Baylor College of Medicine will be uh, hosted by Rob Ketter in Developmental Pediatrics. And then uh, next Friday, John will be back. Uh, and also we will have a, a personal ac uh, accounting of by one of our nurses at Hartford Healthcare, uh, talking about the long-term long COVID symptoms so that she has felt herself and, and the impact it's had on her family. So real life situation from a healthcare team member about long haul. So we a lot of things going on. Again, uh, I think John will give us an update. It's good to have him back. We have a full hour for him. Uh, so, uh, you know, hang on to your questions. And I, I know that you have many, especially about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and what to do about that and where, where we're going with the uh, pandemic. So, John, I'm going to hand it to you to update the, uh, this entire audience about what's new about COVID-19. John? Uh, thank you, Juan. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, I welcome everyone from Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts. I know we have someone from Maryland watching. And uh, again, thank you for being here. We have a lot to cover today. And um, I'm going to move quickly, and then we'll have time for questions. It's a lot going on, and I do want to get everyone up to date. 
Uh, next slide, please. Uh, the first thing I want to do, uh, one of our challenges in the United States lately over the last few years has been our introspection. We just keep looking inwards. But the reality is the pandemic is worldwide and every country is grappling with this. And Atlantic Magazine had a number of pictures of uh, people, uh, what they're doing to vaccinate their populations all over the world. And the picture from Turkey, they're climbing the mountains to get small villages vaccinated. Scotland has a mass vaccination center. Next. Uh, this is Miami, of course, in a car, right? That's America. Uh, Thailand is the next one I wanted to show you. It's a mass vaccination site for uh, people in Thailand. Next. Uh, this is Brazil getting into the Amazon uh, with vaccines and 550 million doses have been given worldwide. It's not nearly enough. And the United States is going to need to come to the plate and begin to help the rest of the world uh, to get immunized because this pandemic is not going to be conquered until every country can be on top of it. This is Rwanda, an, an individual getting uh, immunized in a small healthcare center in a village. Next. Pennsylvania. Uh, it's someone dressed as Superman going into a nursing home to uh, immunize elderly. Israel, which uh, now is above 50, 60% of the entire population fully vaccinated, quite remarkable, vaccinated, quite remarkable. Um, next. The West Bank uh, now moving ahead with Pfizer. This is good news. Uh, that's happening. Um, and then India. Uh, these are women lined up with their vaccination cards getting immunized in India. So. This is happening all over the world. It's not just our constant looking inwards. We are going to need to look outwards to get this pandemic under control because it's just going to come back. So the rest of the world matters and uh, we're going to need to be involved with that shortly. Next. So the United States has administered 4 million doses a day on some days the last few weeks. This is already out of date. Uh, we've delivered 230 million doses, administered almost 200 million. Um, and about 20 to 25% of the population, this is higher now, it's gone up since Tuesday, say 25% are fully vaccinated. Um, it's not nearly enough, you know, we need to be around 70 or 80%, but it's moving quickly. And this has been a relative success story for the United States. Now, we have pockets of states, counties, towns where people don't seem to want to get immunized. Um, it is... Uh, unfortunate and uh, we're going to need to address this as a country and there continues to be mixed messages by our own politicians so uh, this is a challenge for us but we're doing very well now almost four million doses a day next and these are the states with the most immunizations now you can see the northeast uh, and upper midwest and one of the concerns about the upper midwest is there's a big outbreak there right now and they are not at herd immunity state and as uh, situation yet and if this is going to spread, and I'm going to show you some data about this in a minute or so. So, uh, and then you can look at the Southeast where there are states, Alabama and Mississippi in particular, where people are unimmunized and a very, very poor uptake of the vaccine. A combination of um, a conservative feeling about it and suspicion and, and the COVID hoax, and then also a large minority population that is distrustful. Uh, of the medical establishment. So these are real challenges in some of these states that are going to need to be addressed if we, to conquer this pandemic. Next. Uh, and as, as I said, you know, we're doing three and four million doses a day right now in the U.S. And uh, this is great news. Next. And you'll see at this rate, if 
we continue. Um, we're accelerating. Remember, we were in September to hit um, originally to hit herd immunity. We're now talking in June. Uh, if we continue at this rate and we get improved uptake and we can get vaccine hesitancy, you know, mitigated, we could be at herd immunity until for July 4th. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? So um, that's the message I give people. You can show them this curve and say, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a, a July 4th where most people are immunized and we're, we're just so much less worried about this. So it's uh, within our sights, but we have a lot of work to do to get there still. Next. Now, uh, we, despite our own internal challenges, we're among the top 10 in the world for immunization. So about 25% are fully vaccinated, 30, 40% have gotten one dose. Israel's at 60% fully vaccinated. Seychelles, uh, better than that. The UAE is as good. Uh, Chile, a surprising success story. And then Bhutan, of course, Bhutan is the biggest world success. They're just immunizing everyone in that small uh, protectorate. The UK is doing well, uh, better than we are. So um, a lot of countries are performing, but you know, there are a hundred other countries that are challenged in getting these immunizations out. And if, as long as the world uh, has a pandemic creating mutations, uh, we're not gonna be safe here. So we're gonna need to look at this as a worldwide project, not just America. Next. Now, uh, great news. Again, there continues to be a lot of really good news. Pfizer announced, of course, you know, it wasn't peer reviewed, but the data that, you know, they had about 3000 kids, 12 to 15, they got 100% efficacy in prevention of disease and incredible antibody responses, much better than older people. And so the vaccine works in age 12 to 15. Obviously this will have to be presented to the FDA. They have actually less side effects than you get with older people. Kids can be like that. They're very resilient. Their immune systems can be active and they don't feel it the same way we do. And so uh, I'm very optimistic if this gets in front of the FDA and the data are indeed as good as Pfizer says they are. We actually have to look at the data and we need impartial people looking at it, uh, the ACIP and others. I'm optimistic we're gonna have uh, one or two vaccines available age 12 and above by the summer, maybe even by late spring. And these kids will be immunized before the school year starts in September. So great news. We are moving in the right direction. This is sort of what uh, Juan was saying. Yeah, we've got a lot of things going on, but in general, we've got great news. And, and um, these RNA vaccines have far exceeded our expectations. And, and I think that's one of the, again, one of the great things coming out of crises is we figure out new ways to do things. And this RNA model for vaccination will be very useful for other pathogens as well. Works in kids 12 to 15 and preliminary data. Next. Connecticut, um, you know, we have a lot of community spread and I wish I, I wish we were sort of where we were last August, but we're not. And um, we have a lot of community spread, over a thousand new cases a day. Um, and I think everyone needs to be vigilant. I'm gonna show you some data about variants. And um, uh, although we're getting really strong in immunization in Connecticut, it would be very nice to see community spread decline. You know, I drive on 44 on the way to and from Connecticut Children's and these parking lots are filled with people. Most people are wearing a mask, not all. You know, we can't let up on this because we have a lot of community spread and we're gonna spread variants this way. And as you know, the vaccines are not fully effective against all the variants. So um, we're in a race 
to get people immunized and tamp down this community spread in Connecticut. It's not quite where I would like to see it. Next. And you can see that in the numbers in the state. Remember, we'd like to be, and this test positivity rate's gone down to 2% this week. It varies by week, but you'd like to be at 1% and no more than 10 new cases per 100,000. You can see uh, we're not there. You know, we're way above that um, in most of the counties in Connecticut. A uh, particular problem in Litchfield now, where I think it's spreading around because it's getting warm and there's tourists coming in there and others, uh, activities and restaurants and things reopening. So um, this is a problem. And uh, I, I, again, I, can't, I know we're all tired of this, but it is just not over yet. And uh, we need to be very vigilant. This could take off in a larger way if we don't uh, watch our uh, P's and Q's, as they say, in public health masks, distancing, even if you're immunized, be cautious. Next. Now, one of the other interesting things that's happening, this is all over the country. The new cases in Connecticut are moving to young people. So you can see the peak uh, age group now is 20 to 29, 30 to 39, 40, 49. Now, most of these people don't get severely ill, but as you just heard, one of our very own um, employees uh, had a uh, a tragic death in the family of, of a young, healthy individual. And so we, we worry about this um, as the virus changes to adapt to humans. Um, uh, I'm not sure it's a great idea to have thousands and thousands of young people infected. We simply do not understand the long-term effects of this virus. So it's shifted to the young. I think we're protecting our elderly um, and vulnerable in a much better fashion, but you can see where the disease in Connecticut is now. And this is pretty typical of the rest of the country right now. Next. Now, um, will we dodge uh, movies, right? I'm sorry, uh, those of you who don't know which movie this is, uh, you have my sympathies. Um, this is The Matrix, uh, one of the great science fiction movies of all time. And this is Neo dodging bullets. Will Connecticut dodge the bullet of increasing deaths? Because we have an out, we know we're still cranking away in the community because we've done well with immunizations. And um, I don't know the answer to the app, but I'm gonna show you some data next. So far, so good. So if you look at our mortality rate from COVID, it's staying low. Now I can't promise that's gonna continue. But if we can live with this, even with some community spread and the ICUs and the morgues don't fill up, maybe that's kind of where we're gonna be for a little while. So we're gonna to need to watch this very closely. So we have community spread, it's increasing in Connecticut. Um, we have a lot of young people getting infected. So far, our mortality rate has been relatively low. But you know, I say that, but each one of these people who've passed away and continue to pass away from COVID have families and loved ones. And we're at 570,000 nationally, it boggles the mind. And so uh, I can show these curves, but each one of these deaths was someone's loved one. And, and we need to be cognizant of that. And as I watched Dr. Fauci joust with a member of Congress who was deliberately making political points, um, I, I think we all need to take a deep breath and um, the public health community is only trying to save lives. They're not trying to make political points. So again, look at this curve, but it's, it's in a good place. Let's see if it stays there. Next, we're dodging the bullet of increased mortality so far. So the United States year two in the pandemic uh, is entering the fourth resurgence. Um, there's no question that's what's happening. Uh, 
We've relaxed things all over the country. They're more contagious variants. The UK variant doesn't appear to be more virulent, but it's definitely more contagious. We have dropping of public health measures um, and uh, we do not have adequate vaccination in many states. So there is a resurgence in progress. The question is, you know, how bad will it be? And again, will the ICUs and, and mortality be controlled because of immunization? It's a race. And right now, you know, it's neck and neck. We're not on top of this yet because our immunizations haven't gone across the whole country, you know, at the herd immunity level. Next. So the resurgence is very geographically isolated. So you've got a resurgence in the Northeast, which includes us. New York, by the way, has a lot of cases again. And you remember what happened last time that happened, it crept right up here. So we have to be very vigilant. Northeast Michigan has an enormous outbreak. I'm gonna show you those data. And Minnesota and some of the upper Midwest. The South, um, Southwest is quiescent. They had a, a rip-roaring uh, pandemic numbers a month or so ago that settled down, but their immunization rates are poor. So is Michigan and the Northeast gonna to spread to the rest of the country just the way it did last time in the other resurgences? I do not know. We are in a race. If we can get immunizations done in these states, I don't think it's gonna spread. If we lag, it's gonna spread. So this resurgence right now, I think is teetering on how fast we can get our immunizations done. Next. Now, I want to show you Michigan because uh, I, it, I find it extremely worrisome. Um, this is uh, the counties in Michigan. Uh, they have a rip-roaring epidemic again. Um, and the immunization status I put in there, it's not bad, but it's not herd immunity. So even with an immunization rate of 35% of the people having one dose, go to the next uh, slide, please. Michigan is, has rampant resurgence. So 35% of the people getting one dose is not enough. Now look at this, you've got um, almost 10,000 new cases a day in Michigan and the hospitalizations are shooting through the roof. They have not adequately immunized, they're vulnerable and you know this could spread. So uh, the governor is in a political bind in, in, because the last time she shut the state down, they tried to kidnap her and, and do death threats and crazy stuff and so, uh, now the political will to manage this, what they need to do in Michigan is close stuff down again for about four weeks and immunize, immunize, immunize. And I think they would get out of this. I'm not sure the political will is capable of doing that in the state. And this could spread to the rest of the country, um, much like New York. Remember, New York was the one state initially spread everywhere. So next. Now, um, will immunizations of the vulnerable blunt this new resurgence? Michigan, not so good. But what about the other states? Well, our rapid immunizations are continuing. The elderly and high risk are better protected than they were. Florida is a good example of that. They have a lot of community spread, but the mortality rate seems to have settled down a bit. Will we have less hospitalizations and death? Now, a lot more young people are being infected. What long-term issues are we going to see? And you're going to hear about from a long hauler next week. I mean, this is a real issue. And then parts of the country have very low rates of community spread, but they also have low rates of immunization. Where's that going to go? Next. So um, how about the variants? This is another one of the questions uh, we're getting asked a lot right now. What's going to happen with these variants? I, I don't know exactly, but I'll show you some data. Next. Well, the variants are a wild card. In this slide, you can see, um, this is CDC showing 
from January to mid-March, how the variants are taking over the circulation in the United States. So in January, it's all dark blue black over there, which is sort of the original, some of the original strains and B12 was one of the originals and very little variant. If you go to March, you'll see the dominant is B117, which is the UK strain. We also have South Africa now, and there's some other variants creeping in the California variants, which are particularly resistant to the vaccine. So we're going to be dominated by mutant viruses in the next few weeks. And again, another reason to try to accelerate our immunizations, because they do at least give partial protection. And if you could tamp down on viral replication, you'd have less mutants. Next. Um, do the vaccines work against variants? Actually, Dr. Salazar showed this slide um, at a, a, uh, an employee meeting recently. Um, it's not entirely accurate. I'm going to show you some other data, but it looks like for the UK strain, B117, remember that's the one that's more, it spreads easier, but doesn't appear to be more virulent. The vaccines are fine. It's just not going to be a problem. If you look at the South African strain, which is 1351, the um, antibody levels are lower against that strain. And at least in South Africa, there was less uh, efficacy. And so um, we're, we're a little worried about if the South African strain became dominant. Now, P1, which is the Brazilian strain, um, so I have a note that the slides are moving, but I, I they're perfect. We're not in an earthquake here, so I don't know. I'll do our, we'll push on. Um, the P1 Brazilian strain, not so good. Um, we're just not sure. And it looks like there may be some problems. We just don't have enough data yet. Now, next, I'm going to show you some more specific data against the variants. Next. This shows Moderna and Pfizer. Now, this remember, there's some California mutants now. And there's a remarkable decrease in the amount of neutralizing ability of post-immunization sera for the California variants. However, there's still a lot of neutralizing antibodies. So these vaccines are probably going to have at least partial effectiveness. And our hope is they'll prevent serious disease. You might get infected, but they'll prevent serious disease. But you can see, at least in some individuals, there was no protection um, if, when you took the, their sera and you mix it in with the California variants and look at neutralization. So, you know, we may have some challenges. And this is why the Pfizer CEO said yesterday on national news that they'll probably need to be a booster shot at the end of the year. Next. Now, um, Sputnik, which is an adenovirus vector vaccine, we don't have a lot of data on it, but it's being spread all over the world because uh, Russia's sort of stepping in and China's stepping in because the United States has been a little... Um, less aggressive about stepping in for other countries um, and giving vaccines. Um, what we see here is a remarkable decrease in neutralization against the South African variant, also E484 mutations. These are data from Argentina who, that's using Sputnik vaccine. And you can see the bar with B1351, which is South African strain, the red are very, very low. So in fact, that's quite much lower than you saw with Moderna and Pfizer against it in terms of tighter neutralizing antibodies. So the other worldwide vaccines are gonna have similar problems, it appears, uh, against some of the mutations. Next. Okay, long haulers, new data. And I know there'll be lots of questions. I'm gonna talk a little bit about J&J &J in a second. Um, 
this is a nice paper, a uh, small paper that came out just last week um, about uh, eight months after mild COVID among healthcare workers. And they looked at seropositive and seronegative healthcare workers. And then they looked at who had symptoms. And it turns out 26% of people who were seropositive versus 9% of the seronegatives had some sort of symptom. So the 9% sort of the placebo effect, right? I mean, about 10% of people are going to complain about something. But those who were seropositive had a very significant complaint rate of problems. They just didn't feel well. Uh, shortness of breath, fatigue, they couldn't smell and, and, and taste still, um, et cetera. So um, this, is, this is very worrisome. And it's something, again, if millions of young people get infected, you'd like not to have a lot of chronically ill people. So this is another reason um, when I talk to young people, I say, do you really want to end up chronically ill? Get immunized. Because we don't know how many people are going to get like this. Next. That's a large number, 26%. And here, looking at seropositive in the dark, these are their complaints. They claim that their work life, social life, and home life were, were moderately or, or mildly affected um, by these symptoms. They, they didn't feel good. So, um, and you'll hear a little bit more from a personal story next week. Next. Thrombosis, I'm gonna talk first about the AstraZeneca vaccine. So there were several reports from the EU about individuals with TTP-like picture after immunization, low platelets and clots. Uh, petechiae, and then and severe clots, a couple of deaths. They, they did not know whether it was vaccine-induced or some other viruses circulating causing it or what. So it was put on hold in a number of countries while they analyzed the data. Even though it was being considered for emergency use in the U.S., which is probably not going to happen at the moment until that sorts out. So this is the background of that was going on with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which, remember, is an adenovirus vector. It's a chimpanzee adenovirus that vectors in the DNA encoding the spike protein. So um, a problem, but again, we don't know the data yet. Is this causal or is it associated with it? Next. So, and in, in fact, um, these are the data from the EU. There are two papers, one from Germany and one from uh, Norway, I think. And what they showed here are individual patients. This is platelet count. And they developed severe thrombocytopenia, but uh, they had a dysfunctional clotting mechanism. So they developed clots, both intracerebral and other. And then they use IVIG and steroids, and, and, and they were able to get most people's platelets up. And IVIG is probably going to be the treatment of choice for these individuals if we think there's some uh, association with the adenovirus vector vaccine. So these are data. I think this was from the German data. Next. And very similar data from uh, the Scandinavian countries. But what they did here is they found that their antiplatelet antibodies, PF4, uh, in these individuals, and you can see that's the curve showing uh, the high dots up there. And this is probably the mechanism. It's an autoimmune mechanism. Uh, there seem to be uh, antiplatelet antibodies made, and they're activating inappropriately, uh, depleting the platelets and activating a variety of clotting factors. And so. Um, uh, this is probably the mechanism, and <clears throat> this came out of Norway literally uh, this week. Next. Now, what about the J&J &J vaccine? So, so here are the data. There have been 7 million doses given of the Johnson & Johnson. This is an adenovirus <clears throat> vector vaccine. It's an inactivated or a um, non-replicating human adenovirus that is the vector. And out of the 
7 million doses. There were six people, all women, identified uh, to have within 14 days after vaccination a TTP-like picture. And a, a number of these people developed a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is uncommon, and very low platelets. So we do not know if this is causal. Is there another virus circulating that caused it? Is it some other stimulation? We do not know. The, the vaccine is on hold. And the seed, every one of these cases is being thoroughly looked at and investigated and trying to figure out, is this vaccine related? Or is it a coincidence of other, other issues going on? We do not know yet. And that's what I tell people who ask me. We don't know yet. Now, here's the other thing I want to mention that there is a robust post-vaccine monitoring of all of these emergency use vaccines. And it picked it up very quickly. Seven million, six people stopped. The system works. So I think this is a, a very important point that people need to understand this is exactly what it's designed to do. Anything that happens, even if we don't know if it's related or not, look at it quickly and, and make sure safety comes first. So the system works. Um, my heart goes out to the people who got ill. Let's try to figure out if it's caused by the vaccine or not. We don't know yet. Next. Now, another positive thing that's happened is a very exciting data from Regeneron. Remember, they have the bivalent monoclonals, a couple of different monoclonals, not the single. And they, they their thought has been, why don't we use this to prophylax people who can't respond to the vaccine? Makes sense to me. Immunocompromised people just don't make good antibodies. And in fact, it worked. Uh, they did a, a clinical trial and they got 81% reduction of any symptomatic uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections by giving it sub-Q uh, after exposure. Placebo control, double-blinded, um, and it seemed to also prevent variant infection. 1,500 subjects were in households with a new case. They had direct exposure. They got the monoclonal. They didn't get 81% reduction. So I think this is going to be a great tool in our toolbox as we move forward of people who can't respond to the vaccine. They could get these monoclonals every few months and be protected. Uh, and uh, I think, again, another great move forward for us. Next, uh, this is not licensed yet for that, but will be. Now, this was our journey of hope. Um, I do wanna say, and, and um, this has been a very interesting journey for me personally. I get a lot of feedback from the community. This came in the mail um, uh, and uh, a nurse sent this to me. Thank you very much. You know who you are who sent this and it was much appreciated, um, but it's the good, the bad, the ugly. And uh, um, I can't tell you the look on my face as I opened this. Um, you know, one of joy and also, you know, a little despair there. It's not really what I wanted to see in terms of, are we beyond this? But I'm not sure we are. Next. So um, I put it back up. Uh, you know, is this resurgence the good, the bad, and the ugly again or not? And um, I don't think so. I think we're going to learn to live with this virus. It's like influenza. It is not going to go away. We're going to need to learn to live with it and prevent its worst aspects. And I think vaccines will help us reach herd immunity. We have other tools now coming online to prevent people who can't respond to vaccines from getting sick. We're going to have a booster dose late this year. I'm positive that's going to happen. I don't think that's theoretical to cover the variants. We're going to get on top of this and learn to live with this and reduce its worst effects. But um, I did want to share that with you, what I, I'm getting in the mail. And again, thank you, um, the nurse who sent this. It was much appreciated. Next. So here's where we are, and then we're going to go to questions. And we have a lot of time for questions. I was hoping to get through this so we can. Now, the weekly summary. 
Our vaccination effort in the United States is moving ahead robustly, millions of doses every day. We're doing a good job, but we have a lot more work to do. We're, we're not nearly at herd immunity, but we can get there. We can get there. Connecticut has excellent immunization rates. I, I forgot to show you, uh, uh, you know, we're at 50% have gotten one dose. Um, it's really nice, but we have a lot of work to do still in Connecticut. We got to keep going. And Pfizer has outstanding data for children down to 12. I mean, you're not going to do better than 100% efficacy, right? And, uh, and very few side effects, same kind of stuff that you see in adults, probably less. And I'm very optimistic we're going to be immunizing uh, young adolescents shortly. And uh, we have a number of clinical trials down to six months. In fact, Connecticut Children's will be doing one as well. So um, I'm optimistic, perhaps in January of 22, we might be immunizing children who are younger. However, we have high community spread in many parts of the country, including Connecticut, that just cannot continue. We are gonna to need to get on top of that. We have resurgence that's happening in the United States. It is here and it is particularly bad in Michigan, but also in the Northeast. And so um, this is not good news. And if anything, I think we need to double down on getting to every small community and addressing vaccine hesitancy and immunizing people. There are more variants prevalent all over the United States. This is gonna continue. Uh, it is a wild card in what's gonna happen and is it gonna reduce vaccine efficacy and cause breakthrough infections? I don't know the answer to that. More importantly, the worldwide pandemic is roaring ahead and the US is going to need to help. We are gonna to need to get out after we can get ourselves in June or July to a better place that our vaccines, which seem to work, and I would say probably work the best, the data I've seen, need to get out to the rest of the world. We need to get going here because it will just come back in an airplane or on a boat or some other way. And so if we can help the rest of the world, it will help us. And we have waning political will to mandate public health measures in this resurgence. And to me, that's, that's another danger. Uh, Michigan's probably not gonna shut down because they probably feel they just don't have the political support to do that, that's a problem. And we're gonna to have to manage that. And, and the congressional hearing I saw yesterday with an argument with Dr. Fauci, I'm not optimistic that there's the political will to have strong public health measures much longer. So that's where we are next. And um, I, I wanna open this for questions. We covered a lot of ground and now we have a good 20 minutes for questions. Uh, and uh, I'll let somebody um, moderate that if you want to go ahead. And that will be me. Thank you so much, Dr. Schreiber. And good morning, everyone. This is Anna Marie filling in for Dr. S uh, Salazar. He had to step out for a few moments. He'll be back shortly. So um, our first question this morning um, is from Dr. Brancato. Um, and I think this I've heard this talked about quite a bit over the last week or so. What is the prospect for changing from emergency use authorization to regular approval um, that might allow for, for vaccine to be required? That's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, there's science that's not fully developed yet. So we need to analyze all of the data, the Pfizer and Moderna, which has now been given to millions and millions of people. We've got to pull those data in and look in some detail. And that usually takes months to do. I don't, so I don't think it's going to happen in the near future. Um, and I also think there's probably a political component to that um, of forcing people to be immunized. So I, you know, in this current climate. So what I would want to do is let's look at all the data and one which are looking great. 
let's share those data in the usual FDA public hearings. Let's analyze the data with impartial infectious disease and public health consultants. And when the data are presented and look great, we should license it as a regular vaccine. That process has not been completed yet. It's a good question, but I don't think we're there yet. Oh, by the way, the slide's still moving or, or did that settle down during the talk? Uh, the slides are, are removed now, um, oh, but they yeah. I think a few people were having some glitches, but for the most part, they were working. Okay. Um, so I think there's uh, there is some question with regards to international travel. And we have someone asking um, she would like to visit her daughter in Scotland. They um, she has been fully vaccinated. Will, will they be able to do uh, that travel in May? And I think everyone's looking ahead to the summer months and beyond and thinking about international travel. Yeah, another great question. So um, I think the UK, as you as you saw, is in very good shape with immunizations. And in fact, their epidemic is settling down. Their numbers are much better than they were. So I don't know. And remember, each country will have a different rule for you to go there, whether it's testing or immunization. Every country seems to be establishing rules. So I don't know what the UK rules are. And Scotland is still part of the UK. They haven't seceded yet. So I don't know where that's going to go. However, if you are immunized and looking at the numbers in Scotland, I would say it's a relatively low risk travel. They're heavily immunized um, and uh, the public health measures have been robust and the epidemic has settled down. It's not risk free because I don't know what variants might be circulating there. Hopefully whatever vaccine you go would cover it. Now, I think if you're looking at going to um, a country like France right now, they've had a lot of COVID. They're not in the same place. So I think we're going to need to be very careful as we look at what international travel we might want to do and see where the country is in terms of their immunizations and public health measures. And then some countries are just not going to accept visitors. So um, we'll see where that goes. But I think selectively, one could look for some international travel and go. Then remember, you have to sit on an airplane for hours. Um, the airplanes are starting to fill all those middle seats. Um, and so you want to make sure that uh, you are a low risk person and, and, and that you're uh, not traveling where if you had a breakthrough infection, you might get very, very sick. So I think there's some caveats there, but if you're healthy and immunized in the country you're going to uh, has a very high immunization rate and low community spread, I think it's relatively safe, but not many countries are there yet. Thank you. Can you talk a little, a little bit about uh, breakthrough cases in fully vaccinated yeah. people? It's a good question. We don't have all the data yet. Remember, the vaccines are about 90% efficacious. Uh, and so that means, or for 95%, but that means about five or 6% of the people are not protected from the vaccine. And maybe some, maybe that's what we're seeing in the breakthrough. As you immunize more and more people, you'll see a very small number who are just not protected because the vaccine's not 100%. That's probably some of it. We don't know whether some of the breakthroughs are due to variants where your neutralizing antibody titers declined. We also know that most of the people with breakthrough don't seem to be getting very sick. Not all, but most. So I don't know the answer to that yet. These are the two possibilities. Maybe both are happening. Um, in, in no way should it slow us down because as I mentioned, I think if you are immunized, even if you picked up a variant, your likelihood of getting very sick is much, much lower if you're immunized. That seems to be clear. So. Um, those are my answers to that. Probably multifactorial. The vaccine's not 100%. It never is. There'll be a small number of people who are not immune from the, after getting a vaccine, 5%. Uh, and then probably some of the variants are beginning to break through a little bit. Next. Uh, what's the next? Uh, 
Um, wonderful. Thank you. So, um, not surprisingly, there is increased hesitancy with regards to the vaccine due to the news um, around J&J &J this week. Um, so, our audience is asking um, if you can speak to how to address this with patients and families. Yeah, and I think um, it's a great question, uh, something I'm being asked all week, and I, I can give you my own personal reflections. Um, First, I want people to be educated about what happened with the J&J &J vaccine, right? Seven million people, six people seem to have some problem within two weeks of the vaccine. We don't know if it's vaccine caused or some other problem. We just don't know yet. The system worked. It, it made a hard stop. Everyone's looking at all the data and we'll figure it out. So I think that those are the facts. I think people need to hear the facts because you go on Facebook, and, you know, or, or you go on that crazy website, the Infowars, you know, it's all sorts of stuff that people are being bombarded with. So what are the facts? Uh, then I step back and I look at the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are totally different, made differently, different technology, everything. They've been given to over 100 million Americans with no problems, right? Except you don't feel good after the second dose. So that's, those are the facts. Then I want to focus on the disease. And again, I, I've been as I think, Juan, all of us are very humbled by this virus. Um, this is not a virus that's been around humans for generations, and it's doing really weird things that are totally unpredictable. And randomly, very healthy young people get very sick and pass away from this virus. We, ha we have kids in with Missy with this weird inflammatory disorder that seems to affect your heart. It's a strange virus, and um, I don't think we want our population or an individual to get this virus. I wouldn't want to get it. I don't want to get it because um, we have it's unpredictable. And then we don't know how many people will be long haulers. You saw that out of the seropositive people in that study, 20%, more than 20% had chronic symptoms. Um, what if 100 million Americans get sick and 20% of them have chronic symptoms? I mean, that's not what any we want to wish on anyone. So I, I try to outline that. And then, you know, you have to weigh the risk benefits in your, in your head of the, the risk of getting this really strange virus, long haul syndrome. If it's a child, you know, I'd want to get the vaccine as soon as it's available because of Missy. And we have some really sick kids in the ICU too. If you're a young, healthy person, some people are struck down. We had a congressperson die, right? So the risk to me of getting this native infection is significant and we do not understand it yet. And I don't know the long-term effects, maybe your kidneys would be damaged from this virus because it attacks blood vessels. I don't know. I don't like not knowing and I don't want to get it. Then we have Pfizer and Moderna, which are the two vaccines and J&J &J right now we're not using. We've given to hundreds of millions of Americans right now with very little problem. The efficacy is fantastic to prevent serious disease. The risk benefit to me falls way on the benefit side of getting immunized. And, and that's what I tell people. They have to make up their own minds, but that's how I feel about it. And it's worked for, you know, I've had a number of people say, you know, Dr. Tripp, thanks for talking to me. I took the vaccine today. And that's what we do. I actually went to my dentist's office and the hygienist was uh, hesitant. She's working on my mouth, right? And unimmunized. I said, you know, if, and she's young. I said, look, I've seen a lot of young people in the ICU. I just don't think this is a good idea. You're in a dentist's office. Who knows coming in here? I'm immunized. I'm probably not your problem, but you want to get in? And I went through this whole discussion. And then I got an email a week later, she got immunized. And the, the dentist thanked me because, you know, now the whole office was immunized. So we have to work like that in a very supportive way 
with people who are hesitant, understanding their anxiety and supporting them with the facts. And many people will end up getting immunized after that. It's a great question. Keep going. Uh, John, yeah, thanks. Uh, the next question is, what is the current recommendation for, a woman, uh, for women that are pregnant uh, and perhaps comment on trimester of the pregnancy? So the current recommendation is, of course, you talk to your obstetrician and it's a personal decision because it's not that there were no data in the original clinical trials. Now there is, um, there are data being generated because there's a clinical trial, including pregnant women now. I don't have those data yet. In general, we are recommending immunization because pregnant women appear to get more sick from COVID and end up in the ICU more. So we, rec we uh, recommend immunization. It would be with Pfizer and Moderna because that's what's available currently. Um, J&J, when it was given, um, that was recommended as well. And um, I think that's a very good recommendation. Uh, the other benefits appear to be that it be passed, the antibodies will pass on to the baby and the baby will be immune and uh, also get it in the breast milk too. And so it's good for the baby. That said, I've had some pregnant women saying, I'd like to wait until the third trimester. Um, are you good with that? And I said, well, if you're more comfortable with it and you get immunized in your third trimester, that's, that's your choice and it's a good idea. Um, however, you're unprotected in the first two trimesters and you're at higher risk to end up in the ICU and, um, and, and get very sick. So you have to weigh that in your mind. But uh, I do think we are recommending that pregnant women be immunized. John, the next question is, how much are we checking for variants and how can we ask for, <clears throat> for a variant evaluation, for example, of vaccinated individuals? Yeah, um, I've been frustrated by that. Um, as Juan knows, we've had a couple of people we would have liked to have um, genetic testing of the particular virus and um, it's not routinely done. We can't do it. The Department of Health has to take the isolate and it's probably sent to the CDC. I'm not sure we're doing it in Connecticut either. And, and it's being done in some research centers. And so it's not as organized and comprehensive as I would like. That's all I can tell you. So in general, we're not doing it. Now, um, if we do have a vaccine breakthrough, for example, we've not had that yet that I've seen, uh, I would want that isolate um, genetically analyzed and see if it was a variant. And we would probably call DPH and see if they could do it. Um, that's not worked out for us so far, honestly. Uh, there's a question about community pediatricians vaccinating teens uh, when both, uh, you know, I mean, Pfizer primarily, also Moderna to a certain extent, is, uh, are vaccines that are difficult to house in the office. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I wish we had a vaccine that would be easier to house in the office. I, I think that they've loosened up the rules for Pfizer a little bit to help out. Um, I think the in my own opinion, it's just my opinion, I think um, that the practices are an outstanding place to be pushing out immunizations to families. And um, I would love for you guys to have the ability to do that. There, we're gonna have to figure this out um, fairly soon. I will predict to you that Pfizer will be allowed to be given to 12 year olds by early summer, maybe sooner. And we're gonna to need to partner with you and figure out how to effectively get the vaccine to your patients. I don't have an answer yet. There, there are ways we can think about this. Could you shuttle it to practices? And it's good for a day, but then you don't wanna waste doses. Um, could the state support practices to have better freezers? I don't know the answers to this. It's a really important question. I think it's gonna come very quickly. And the good news is, I think pretty quickly, we're gonna to have to figure this out because I believe it'll get EUA for 12 and above soon. So it's a good question. I don't have all the answers. I know Dr. Sellers and I have no doubt we'll be talking about that exact issue in the next few days. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, John and I are involved in a uh, um, in, in the final stages of being chosen for a, a trial for a different type of vaccine from Novavax, uh, which which is protein based. It doesn't require any deep freezing. It'll be refrigerated, typically at four degrees. Um, and I, I'm guessing those formulations, which are being tried in kids starting at age five, will become available for pediatricians to use in their office. Because you know, just remember this. This virus is here to stay for a while, uh, and I, I guarantee you that we're going to be vaccinating well into the next two, three years, and it better. And the only way we're going to be able to do that routinely is the way you have always done vaccinations. All I right. completely um, agree. Uh, now, by the way, the Novavax, I'm sorry, the Novavax vaccine, um, Dr. Sett, let's get a little more detail. So it's made the same way the hepatitis B vaccine is made. It's recombinant. It's actually made in insect cells, and they just crank out you know, gallons of this protein, and they spike protein, and they purify it. So it's a more traditional vaccine doesn't have to be stored. RNA is very, um, breaks down very easily. This doesn't. So to Juan's point, it might be an ideal vaccine for pediatricians' offices uh, in the future. Yeah. Uh, from Les Wilkoff, regardless of whether or not there's a government mandate, private companies and sports concert venues will require vaccination. Uh, Connecticut Children's requires influenza vaccination. And what about COVID vaccination uh, being uh, mandated? So this, this is a good question. This gets back to the earlier question we had about the EUA. So as long as it's an emergency use vaccine, it would be very difficult to mandate this, um, in my opinion. I think once FDA approves it as a regular vaccine, it's not an emergency use only vaccine. It will be easier for us to go to our employees and say, look, this is just like hepatitis B. We really need you to be immune to this virus uh, to protect our patients and yourself. But we're not there yet. I do believe it will get there. Um, that is not where we are yet, in my opinion. As long as it's an EUA, many companies will have some difficulty in mandating this. But it's going to move to be a permanent vaccine fairly quickly. Uh, John, a question about any more cases of, uh, of this thrombocytopenic thrombosis, uh, in addition to the, the ones that have been reported. I haven't heard, but I think the FDA is looking at this. Yeah, I've not heard. I know they're doing, they're obviously doing a post-vaccine follow-up and track it. So it's very time consuming, trying to track as many people as they can. And I've not heard of this, by the way, after the millions and millions of doses of Pfizer and Moderna, I've not heard of this. So there is a background in the adult world of TTP. I mean, it does happen. And, and so we have to be careful to get rid of, you know, not have the background be attributed to the vaccine. So um, it's complicated, but right now I've not heard of any more cases either. Yeah, and if people want to listen uh, to the, it's really fascinating, the, 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 the CDC, uh, the FDA, unfortunately, had a, uh, a really well done uh, webinar and then the CDC had one as well, which actually, really uh, went deeply into the numbers and and what the uh, excess incidences of uh, of this disease are associated with the vaccine. So please log into that. We can send the website link. Um, from a question from Pam Fanning. Uh, do, you, do you know what strain of the virus is affecting so many children in Brazil and why the children are impacted so much more than in other countries? Yeah, you know, it depends what part of Brazil, but the P1 is the dominant variant in a lot of Brazil. And there are a lot of sick kids in Brazil right now. But, you know, I, I don't know if that's virus. Uh, are these in provinces where there's a lot of malnutrition or there are other factors, environmental factors, making the children more susceptible? But, um, you know, I'm a little worried that some of the variants um, in other countries, you know, could slip out. And the P1 is one that does worry us. But I'm not aware of data showing that the children who are getting very sick in Brazil have a specific variant. It might be there. I'll look. I'll look for next week. It's a great question. 
Yeah, in the governor's press conference yesterday, he stressed the importance of 16 to 45-year-olds getting vaccinated, yet it is still very hard for this age group to get appointments. Do, do you have any insight on when we will have more vaccines available in Connecticut, which will, be, which will increase availability? Uh, I know this state is way out of the curve compared to other states. I know that doesn't solve the frustration, but, um, and we don't control the vaccine flow coming into the Connecticut. The federal government does one. I don't know if you know, we're getting doses. They are coming in. I don't know if you've heard of a new shipment, Juan, that's improving that to Connecticut. No, we're actually ahead of the curve, like you said, John. And, uh, you know, and again, here at Connecticut Children's, we have prioritized uh, vaccinating 16-year-olds and above that have uh, cer certain health conditions. And uh, hopefully if we, you know, as we move forward, we will do the same for the 12-year-olds when it becomes available. But uh, yes, it is frustrating. It can be frustrating. If you're a pediatrician that has a, a kid with a, any underlying condition of any form, 16 and above, that is part of your practice, please email us. We can, you know, probably get that child in to our clinic if you haven't received an email about that. Um, the uh, from Dr. Ratson, the uh, loss of sense of taste and smell fascinate her. Fascinate me, fascinates me too, Susan. Has there been any research on this? Is is it central? What percentage of afflicted people recover? Is it also part of the long haul syndrome? Actually, it's for, this is not from Susan. It's from Richard Ratson, her husband. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, you have uh, three or four questions in there. Yes, some of the long haulers have chronic taste and smell problems, but not many, but some do. Um, we believe that the virus infects the olfactory bulb and the olfactory portion of your brain, and that's why, and the virus is there. We know that it has neurologic consequences. So the answer is, you know, it's probably not good for your brain and many people. Um, and there were three components to that question one. I've answered two of them. Um, yes, long haulers, some long haulers have chronic problems with it. We know very well that the olfactory bulb and other parts of the brain uh, appear to be inflamed. We don't know if it's viral invasion. It's probably inflammation in response to a small number of viruses, but it, it is very focal and can affect the olfactory pole. Yeah, and you know, this uh, just a point um, of uh, vaccine hesitancy, John. I, uh, I spoke to a 30-year-old who is uh, by profession a chef and who was very hesitant uh, in getting vaccinated and saying, you know, I'm not going to die from this disease. Well, I pointed out to him that he may lose his sense of taste and smell, then his job will be in jeopardy if that happens. Uh, he got vaccinated the week after. So that's just another, you know, common thing. So, so you will not die from this, but you may not be able to test, you know, taste anything and that you cannot be a chef. Uh, from Richard Segal, do you foresee a role uh, for community pediatricians to vaccinate their patients once the vaccine uh, gets approved for younger patients? Yeah, I mean, we, 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 met, we discuss it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's where it needs to happen. The Novavax will help if that's licensed. And I also think they'll probably need to be support uh, for private practices and other practices uh, to uh, be able to manage other vaccines too. So it, absolutely, that's the place to do it. Um, do we know of the six cases of the women uh, that had the thrombosis wearing over the, uh, on uh, oral contraceptives? I, I don't think I, I know that. I don't know the answer to that. Um, it's an interesting question because oral contraceptives are known to be pro-thrombotic. Uh, it's a great question. I have no doubt the FDA is looking into every potential medicine they were on, if any, and, and um, other environmental factors. So it's a very important question. I don't know the answer to it. I, I suspect when the FDA does follow-up release of data, uh, these kind of things will come out. Uh, Dr. Tynan makes a comment that Cornell and Rutgers, among others, have announced that for in-person learning this fall, students will be required to be vaccinated uh, with religious and medical exceptions. Uh, should healthcare facilities follow this requirement? I think you mentioned this uh, issue. Yeah, you know, in, in, in my opinion, yes. 
um, I, I think that we should encourage people to be immunized and we should shoot for all of our all of our providers being immunized. I, I think at this point, everyone's seen the data. We're a sophisticated population, more so than the general public. And I, I think that we need to protect our patients and protect our workforce. Um, I, that said, just medical legally, uh, as an EUA, it's a little more difficult to do that. Um, but I think it's a good idea. I think we should ask that everyone be immunized. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to have half the students uh, rounding with me knowing that some of them could get very sick. They're not immunized. I, I, I think that should be, we should not subject them to that risk. And, and in addition, they shouldn't put our patients at risk because our patients are not fully immunized yet. So in my opinion, I, I think we should. But um, the EUA makes it a little more complicated than it might be. Uh, John, the question about a, a percent protection after one dose of an mRNA vaccine. Yeah. You know, it's variable, but very good. I mean, there's one study that showed a really good protection after one dose, 80%. Others are 50%. I, I'm a little nervous. There's another question about why don't we just give one dose and figure out the second dose later kind of thing. I'm a little nervous about that because when you, sh you saw the, the um, data of some of these variants where the neutralizing titers um, drop, that's after two doses. If you have one dose, you might not be protected at all. And so I really feel we've got to optimize our immunity and that the two-dose regimen is ideal and that if a variant becomes dominant, we're unlikely to have a lot of sick people ending up in the ICU or dying. I, I worry with the one-dose policy um, that we might have partially immune people more susceptible to severe disease. So I can't give you data for that, but I would prefer that we try to get those two doses in within a time. You know, remember, I don't think it needs to be three weeks, one day, four weeks, one day. I, I think we probably have a week or so on either side. We got to get that second dose in. All right. Um, well, it's uh, we still have more questions, but uh, we're at the end of our, our session. Uh, we, we could probably stay here for the next hour and a half, John. So, again, a lot of interest. I really appreciate everyone joining in today. We had a, a close, to, I don't know, a lot of people joining in for this. Ask the answer is, is, is very typical. So, John, thank you very much for an outstanding presentation, for keeping us updated. Thank you, everyone, for joining, asking questions, keeping engaged. Let us know if there are topics you want us to address. Uh, we will see you again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and again uh, for the same session a week from today. Have a good weekend and be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.